we're going to talk about the uh, book of Jude, just one chapter. Um, it's the second book from the end, uh, just in front of Revelation. It's kind of a, a prelude to Revelation. It's a good segue. Um, and like I said, Revelation, the, the book of Revelation, not Revelations, because Rick uh, really drives him nuts when you say that. So Pastor Rick spent, um, I think it was back in 2019, he went through the book of Jude, and he spent uh, four sermons on it for a total of four hours. I like listening a lot to Chuck Missler, and he did six sermons over the, uh, the book of Jude in a six-hour time frame. Tonight, I'm going to do my best to cover it in an hour. So buckle up, strap in, and be ready for the ride. So the name Judah... Hebrew, Jude, Greek, and Judas English was a common name back in the first century Israel. It meant praised. There were up to six Judas uh, listed in the New Testament. Of course, the name that ruined it for everybody was Judas Iscariot, uh, the one who betrayed Jesus. But just stop and think for a minute, like in our culture and around the world, just how many biblical names are still used today. I know uh, our three, my three sons are... Uh, you know, uh, James, Gabriel, and Andrew. So we have the biblical names. Um, but nobody names their son Judas. And I always thought the, uh, the name, but I never had a daughter, but I always loved the name Delilah. But my wife would veto that name just for the same reason everybody vetoes the name Judas. So the Judas we're talking about is not Judas who betrayed Jesus, but was actually the brother uh, of Jesus, or to be more precise, the stepbrother. So he'd been the half-brother of Jesus. We can reference uh, Matthew 13, verse 55, and also in Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 3. In Matthew 13, 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So right there we have that. And in verse 56, he said, and his sisters, are they not with us? So I'll say this, and, and I think uh, Jake and Les would agree upon this. One of the great things about getting up here to, to teach, and I encourage any, everybody to, for the opportunity to, to try to get to teach, and it may not be up here, maybe just be with your family or at work, but there's so much that you can learn from getting in God's word. And I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't know Jesus had sisters. Did y'all know Jesus had sisters? So that's, I just thought that was pretty fascinating. Um, so Jesus had four brothers and sisters, but didn't you know, they didn't believe in his deity until his resurrection. So in John chapter seven, verse five, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And in Psalm 69, verse eight, I became estranged from my brothers and an alien in my, uh, to my mother's sons. Jude calls himself brother of James, vice using Jesus. So he was brothers to both, but he just say he references James. His brother James went on to lead the church in Jerusalem. Uh, side note, there were three different Jameses also in the New Testament. So let us examine some of the comparisons between his brother James and uh, Jude. James wrote the book of James, which deals with the good works as evidence of saving faith. Jude wrote the book of Jude, which deals with evil works as evidence of apostasy. And that's going to be the big theme tonight. An overall look into the book of Jude, we'll see apostasy, fallen uh, angelic hosts, 
a dispute between Michael and Satan that's only found in Jude. And finally, I'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the Apocrypha, the book of Enoch. An interesting point uh, before we begin, Jude is the only book that is devoted entirely to apostasy. Uh, Luke talks about this, um, and it has a lot of prophetic uh, meaning in the book. In Luke 18, verse 8, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on this earth? The book is written to believers. There's a structural outline uh, when you go through the, the book of Jude. The assurance to Christians in verse one and two. Uh, the believer in the faith in verse three. Apostates described in verse four. Apostates in Old Testament history, five through eight. Apostasy in supernatural realm, verses nine and 10. An ancient trio of apostates in verse 11. Apostasy in the natural realm, 12 through 13. Apostasy in Old Testament prophecy in 14 through 16. Apostates described 17 through 19, and the believer and the faith 20 through 23, and then finally the, uh, the good news, the assurance for the Christian in verse 24 and 25. So before, that's the intro, so before again, I'll just uh, start with a word of prayer. Lord, uh, I pray uh, tonight that we have open hearts and open minds, uh, that as we are kind of getting into the later stages where we're expecting you any minute now, the imminent return of Christ, Lord, that we would heed warnings to what Jude has and be watchful for apostates that are trying to enter the church. Lord, that we'd be Christ-focused. Lord, that you would also embolden us to go out and spread the word to the lost. In Jesus' name. All right, uh, so let's begin. Uh, Jude chapter one, the first part of the verse um, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and then the brother of James. I, I believe this is in, a, in, in humility that he's, he's uh, basically referring to himself as a bondservant versus talking to, uh, calling Jesus as his brother. Uh, you're familiar with the Greek word for bondservant or slave as doulos. To Jude, this was more important than claiming the, basically being the brother I think this is remarkable that he would, would do this. I mean, most people, if you had someone like Jesus as your, as your brother, that would be your, your claim to fame and your authority if you ever challenged or your credibility. You know, I, I could see myself like, do you know who I am? Do you know who my brother is? But, you know, Jude doesn't do that. Jude follows example set becoming the bondservant, a slave to our Lord kept for Jesus Christ. So in uh, verse one, we see three parts of this sentence. We see called, beloved, and kept. Who are uh, called or another word would be invited? The Greek word is kletos. You can see this word used in Romans chapter eight. In Romans eight, verse 28 through 30, and we know that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God, to those who are called, according to his purpose, in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and those whom he uh, predicted, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This is also um, used in John chapter 15 through 16 and 6 Verse 65, so who are the beloved? John 14, 23, Jesus answered them and said to them, 
If anyone love, loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and he will come to me and we will make our abode with him. That's also found in John 16, 27 and 17, 20 through 25. The word kept, tereo, the Greek word, is to guard from loss or injury to like really keep your eye on something. It's used 65 times in the New Testament. For example, in Acts 12, uh, verse five, Peter was tereo, kept in prison. Also in Acts 25, verse four and verse 21. So how are we kept? In John 10, verse 29, my father who has given them to me is greater than, excuse me, let me make sure I said that right. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So he's got a good grasp on us and he's keeping us. In verse two, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So real quick question, what's the difference between mercy and grace? You ever think about that? You know, we kind of use those two interchangeable, but they kind of are two different things. So mercy is not getting what we deserve and grace is getting what we, what we don't deserve, okay? And then love, as it talks about in verse two, that's our badge of identity as Christians. In John chapter 13, verse 34, a new command that I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Verse 35 by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you, love, if you have love for one another. So think of it this way. Mercy is upward, peace is inward, and love is outward. In verse three, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which I, uh, for once, all handed down to the saints. Now, he says, I felt the necessity. Um, I don't really think that does it justice in the English. It doesn't accurately, accurate, uh, excuse me, accurately describe what he's trying to, to get across. The word in Greek is anage. It's used 18 times in the New Testament. It shows a, a distress or a compulsion uh, something that you're obligated to do. Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. For I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, agake, uh, for woe to, is me if I do not preach the gospel. So question, have you ever had a uh, passion or, or a plan and then all of a sudden it gets changes or you're doing something entirely different? You know, like you had, you had this set up and then now the, you felt like the Holy Spirit is like completely take, taking you in another direction. Well, that's what's happening to Jude here. He was set up to, to, to write, but as we see, he is then, go back and read this. Oops, sorry. So, sorry, I lost my place there. So he's felt back to, to go back and to cover this, basically the apostasy that's going on. So in the case of um, other examples of this, where you see somebody in the Bible who has, has kind of their, what they think that they're wanting to do in life and it's completely changed was the Apostle Paul. You know, here's this man highly educated with his zeal. Initially, he's going out and persecuting 
Christians until he's blinded on the road to Damascus and has his encounter with Jesus. Then his life is totally shifted. But then Paul, whose passion again was, was for, for his, his people, the Jewish people, the Lord says, no, 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 no. I want you to go out into the world and preach to the Gentiles. So in both times, he's totally has his game plan tossed aside and it's like, this is what I want you to do. And again, this is what happens with, with uh, Jude. In verse three, you're witnessing the Holy Spirit directing Jude to switch gears and address the church with regard to a warning of apostasy. That a warning is applied to the first century church, but it's also applicable to the church today. And who are the saints that we're talking about in verse three, aka the holy ones? Well, that's easy, Jim. That's, that's us, the believers. In verse four, for certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord into lasciviousness and deny our master and Lord Jesus Christ. So why did Jude write this letter? Well, it's because of verse four that we just read. Because of the tares, the weeds that are in the, intermixed in the wheat. We get a great parable when we reference Matthew chapter 13, 24 through 30. The parable, the man sowing seed, which is the word of God, but then the enemy comes in at night and sows in tares. Both are allowed to grow until harvest. Both of them, you can't tell as they're growing. You can't tell them apart between the tares and the wheat. But when it comes harvest time, the tares were gathered and bound into bundles and burned up. The wheat was gathered and put into the barn. The point of the parable is you can't distinguish between the two, the tares and the wheat, because they are identical until they mature and produce during the harvest. So it's incredibly hard to spot a tear. Um, the, per, the produce or fruit it bears is how you know it's not its outward appearance initially. Meaning, as it applies to an apostate, I can't look through this room and sit there and go, okay, there's the apostate or there's the apostate over there. They're gonna talk like you, sound like you, dress like you. So there's not really any kind of thing to distinguish, but the fruit that bears is how you know. But there's more than just having the appearance of a Christian and the apostate. There's something a little more sinister that we're looking at when we're talking about an apostate. So it's more than just being an unproductive weed. It's an invasive weed that wants to choke out the other good plants in the garden. I don't know if any of y'all get into gardening, but I, I do. So you got the tares and the weed. I kind of like to think of the weeds that I'm constantly trying to pluck out of my flower beds. And it's like I spend all kinds of time plucking the, you know, the weeds out. But, you know, the ones that look completely different, you know, you can see those as they're coming up and get those out. But it's the ones that look just like a tulip or, or whatever you're growing. Those are the ones you kind of have to be patient and see because you don't want to rip up the flower. So in the same way, it it's kind of makes sense to, to me. In verse four, we have false brethren sneaking into the church. Galatians chapter two, verse four talks about this. But it's because of the false brethren secretly brought in who sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. So again, there's a sinister, not just trying to 
be an imposter. There's, there's a sinister uh, motivation there. Paul lists the perils of false brethren in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. I've been on frequent, frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea. But listen to the last one, dangers among false brethren. Paul had a really tough, tough life, but it was also a very rewarding life and fulfilling. But he gives that warning there about false brethren. He talks about, Paul talks about apostasy in the later times with the doctrine of demons. That's in 1 Timothy 4, verse one and in six. But the Spirit explicitly says that in the later times, some will fall away, apostasy, from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. In verse six, in pointing out that these things uh, to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Jesus Christ, constantly nourished on the words of faith and on sound doctrine, which uh, you have been following. So how do we guard against the uh, apostasy we'll go, um, and the doctrine of demons? Well, Paul gives us the tools there with the words of faith and sound doctrine. So what is a, an apostate? It's not just a indifference or heresy alone. It's deliberate rejection of God's truth. Uh, in the book of Jude, we're gonna get three examples of this that I'll cover later with Cain, Balaam, and Korah in verse 11. Um, the three identities of the apostles or characteristics, ungodly, the perverts of grace with uh, lasciviousness and deniers uh, of our uh, Lord and Savior. We see Cain, ungodly, Balaam, perversion of grace, and Korah, denial of God's appointed leader. So what are the other threats? I'd also submit any claims to subtract or add to, uh, to the Bible, to God's word, is evidence of apostasy. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter four, verse two. You shall not add to the word which I'm commanding you to take away uh, and not take away from it uh, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you. We also see in Revelation 22, verse 18 and 19, that we're not to add uh, to God's word, add or subtract. In verse five, now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt and subsequently uh, destroyed those who did not believe. So everybody is very familiar with the stories here of the Jews basically being saved from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. How God was faithful to Israel and how he performed miracles uh, as he took them out of the land of Egypt, how he, the miracle of crossing the Red Sea. And yet, you have, uh, you have all this happening, and this is uh, getting into Numbers chapter 13 and 14. However, when they send the 12 spies into the promised land, they, minus Caleb and Joshua, they come back and they're talking, there's giants in the land. The word Nephilim is used. They have huge cities and huge walls and it's gonna be impossible for us to, uh, to inhabit and possess this land. So here they, they can show a complete lack of faith after just witnessing all these miracles. The same generation, we're not talking hundreds of years later. These are the same people who 
were, were freed from slavery. Then this is where we see Israel's lack of faith and in rebellion. In Numbers 14, chapter 14, one through three, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried. And the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, what we had died in the land of Egypt? What that we, if we had died in the land of Egypt? The Lord then is going to address Moses and Aaron in verse 26 and 28. But as for you, your corpses will fall in the wilderness. Your sons shall be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. So that generation, because of their unbelief, wandered in the desert for 40 years until they all died off. So what was the, the issue that Jude's focusing on? Well, it was apostasy in Israel. So we think of individually, this was the nation of Israel showing apostasy, falling away, and then destruction that came upon them. Bottom line in this is God reserves the right to destroy any group of people or persons if they become guilty of certain forms of unbelief or other sins to which unbelief leads. In verse six, and angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Okay, so now we're, we're kind of talking about Israel. Now we're getting into this whole spiritual thing going on with angels and, and whatnot. So what, what are we talking about here? Chuck Missler is kind of funny. He talks about this as this is the spooky part of, of Jude. We're kind of getting into the Halloween side. Okay. Uh, so what on earth is he talking about? Peter speaks of this in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness reserved for judgment. The predominant view is that there are angels that had to do with the fall of Lucifer. There were angels there dealing with the fall of Lucifer. Uh, we see that in Isaiah 14, 12 through 17 and Ezekiel chapter 28. In Isaiah 14, 12, how have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to the earth. You have weakened the nations. Then, uh, and then the second part of that is you get into what Lucifer did that was like so unforgivable. The five um, I will statements, I will ascend on high, I will put, you know, so he's basically making himself out to, to be God, which was just unforgivable. In Ezekiel uh, 28, you get kind of a, a glimpse at Satan too in this. What's interesting about this is it's, it's about the Prince of Tyre, but then it kind of shifts gears into basically he's talking about Satan. So you see that also in Isaiah where he's talking about uh, a human king, but then quickly you notice this is not about a human anymore, that it's, uh, it's about Satan. The fallen angels uh, are discussed in Revelation chapter 12, verse four. And his tail swept away a third of the stars out of heaven and threw them to the earth. So that's where we get that a third of the angels uh, fell and are with Lucifer. So that's the verse that we get that from. And Genesis chapter six, verse one through four. Now it came about when men began to, mul men began to multiply on the face of the, of the land and daughters were born to them in verse two, that the sons of God, and that's uh, Benah Elohim, the angels of God, 
saw the daughters of men were beautiful and they took, uh, took wives for themselves, uh, whoever they chose. So the Nephilim were fallen ones that were on the earth in those days and also afterwards when the sons of God and the daughters of men and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men were of old, men of renown. So I believe that this is some kind of unnatural thing going on between you have angelic hosts basically able to procreate with human women. And so one of the things that Satan does, he has many tactics, but one of the things was, uh, I believe is a, it's a pollution of the human gene pool. And I think that is one of the reasons, other than all the human wickedness, but also why there was basically Noah, his wife, and the sons and their wives were the only ones spared. So you have the unbelief, but there's also possibly a pretty big gene pollution problem. So with the human genes. So I know this is kind of getting far out there. All right, so just stick with me. So some people, some churches, uh, this was kind of the popular belief up until about the third or fourth century AD. And then you had basically the Catholic church kind of coming in and then teaching, no, 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 it's not... It's not uh, basically angels mating with, with women. This is the line of Seth mating with the women. Well, Seth and the line of Seth wasn't necessarily known for being righteous. And then the other part of this is Seth was human and then you have these women. How do you get giants from that or just ginormous people? So that doesn't quite make sense to me. Um, so we need to see numerous accounts in the Gospels where demons pleaded with Jesus not to cast them into the pit before their time. In the case of the man in the shore of Galilee, on Mark uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 through 13, you have the, the, the man who's inhabited with thousands of demons. He calls himself Legion, which a Roman Legion was 6,000. So who knows 6,000, but it was a lot. Um, but that that the, the demons there pleaded with Christ not to, to, to throw them into the pit, to, to judge them early. They preferred to go into the swine. What's really interesting about this story is that Jesus obliged their request and allowed them to, to go into the swine. So I thought that was kind of cool. I'm not sure why he did that, but maybe someday I'll get to ask him. Uh, so two points. So even the angels are not spared from punishment from their uh, apostasy, the, they're falling away. And some fallen angels are free to roam and, and some, uh, excuse me, some angels are free to roam and set for a future judgment while others are already bound. So what we get from this is the ones, the thought is, is that the ones that were, had, had uh, procreated with women, that was a big no-no. And so you had the, the, basically the fall of the angels and a third of them got sent out of heaven. A few of those were even naughtier and went on to procreate with women. Those were immediately bound and put into the pit. You still have a bunch that are running around, but the other ones are chained, okay? In verse seven, we get into Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them since in the same way that these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in the undergoing the, the punishment of eternal fire. So why does Jude, uh, Jude reference these ancient cities? 
What is there to learn from their destruction? Perhaps uh, their apostasy is prophetic in the last days. Apostasy begins with intellectual doubts, but it's certain to end in physical degradation. We typically think of apostasy as an intellectual heresy and not a defilement of the flesh. However, what we see here is in verse four of Jude, they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. In verse eight, they defile the flesh. Verse 10, they're gonna corrupt themselves as beasts. And in verse 16, they're gonna walk after their own lusts. Sodom and Gomorrah are known for their wickedness, but here in Jude, they're linked with apostasy. So they must have had knowledge of the truth and walked away from it. Keep in mind, this is only 450 years after the flood. You think that people would have still been close to, to God after the, saving them from the flood. Shem was actually still alive at this time. The five cities existed in the valley of uh, what experts believe is the southern portion of the, the Dead Sea. It looked much different back then. I've been down there twice, and it's just, a, it kind of makes me think of the, the Salton Sea and around El Centro, California. But it's, it's just, it's actually the lowest place on earth. It's over 1,200 feet below sea level, but it's just very, very desert. So, and then you have a, a large, um, actually the Dead Sea is kind of the two bodies that are connected, but a north and a south uh, side. But back in that day, it was completely different. Must have had a lot more rainfall and everything. So much so that when Abraham and Lot, their, their God blessed them and their, their, their flocks began to expand and multiply and they, they, they got to where they were too large to, to be together, Abraham gave Lot the choice. Do you wanna go west or you wanna go east? No, I'll go the other way. And Lot chose to go east into to that land uh, where Sodom and Gomorrah was. That's in uh, Genesis uh, 13. In verse seven, it lists gross immorality and how that went after strange flesh. Uh, this is beyond just fornication between a man and a woman. This references homosexuality. I know that's not a popular topic uh, these days. And so just bear with me as I get through this. Uh, I believe that sin is sin. But what I once heard when I was listening to Chuck Missler talk about homosexuality being an accurate barometer for how one's culture is. Isn't it odd to think that how quickly, when you, when you take a look at homosexuality in the society today, how it's accelerated the acceptance of it. In the 1960s, it was illegal. And now they have a whole month uh, to celebrate it. So the Gay Pride Month. Across the country, children receive indoctrination in public schools, starting in elementary school, not all schools, but in some public schools, elementary school, all the way to through higher education. We see parents around the country showing support for trans women, stripper dancing with their children. It's happening. I even saw this happen in Texas, where I'm originally from. It's a very red state, and they have it happening down there too. Uh, and what's crazy about this is half of Americans are okay with this, you know? And uh, so it's just, it's, it's very surprising how much our society has changed. 
And I don't say this to invoke anger, but merely uh, to reference our own society's apostasy, our falling away. Billy Graham in 1965 was once quoted as saying, if God doesn't judge America, he'll have to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. We see a continuation of unholiness with other examples in verse eight. Uh, Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh and reject authority and revile angelic majesties. So I gotta think about this like, okay, I got some pretty strange dreams. Like, am I responsible for those? Are we? So um, there's a guy from Calvary Chapel, Skip Heitzig, and I was listening to him. He's a Calvary Chapel pastor in New Mexico. And he was talking about that these men, their, their dreams, they were using those dreams as prophetic. You know, like this is God or God's, or they're saying this, you know, for their own personal gain. So that was how they were defiling themselves. Wasn't necessarily, you know, you don't really have much control of your dreams, but anyway, they were trying to speak for God or speak of God's and, and using this in the, you know, for, for dreams. Additionally, we don't have to look far for examples of rejection of authority that it talks about in verse eight. Take any look at any of the US, uh, major cities in the US and you'll see a complete breakdown in law. Total lawlessness, total disrespect for people in authority, civic leaders or police, even the Apostle Paul in Acts 23, verse one through five, apologizes for how he talked back to, he mistakenly, uh, to, to the priest, okay? So one of the things that we thought is a possibility when Paul's you know, thorn in the side is, he may, his eyesight may have been really uh, degraded. And so when he's addressing the high priest in the Sanhedrin, he, uh, it's, it's actually a very, I, won't, I just have the, the verse five here, but it's actually a very interesting tell because the, uh, the high priest directs him to hit Paul in the mouth. And he's like, hit me in the mouth. May God smite you. And, and so he starts kind of going off and they are like, how dare you talk to the high priest? And then this is what Paul says in verse five. I was not aware, brethren, that he was the high priest for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So, having said that, how do you follow this verse in your current, with the current presidential leadership or the past president? Let me ask this question. How do you tame your tongue when it comes to people God anointed in places of leadership within the church? So verse nine, that's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer that. So uh, verse nine, Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil, argued about the body of Moses. Uh, He did not dare announce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, again, this is something that it's really cool that only appears in, uh, this obviously happens in the Old Testament timeframe, and it only appears in the New Testament in the book of Jude. So it appears Michael, the archangel, was given the task of burying Moses' body. Remember, Moses was not allowed to enter the the promised land. Really cool uh, side story. I was in Jerusalem. If you ever get a chance to go on one of these trips, it's it's amazing. But literally, I think Jerusalem's maybe 2,500 feet uh, uh, MSL. And then I talked about the Dead Sea being minus 1,200 or so feet. But... 
on a clear day, I'm in kind of the southern edge of Jerusalem and you're kind of, you got the, all these hills and valleys and you can look across and see the Dead Sea. And then just up from the Dead Sea is a mountain, which is in the land of Jordan. Yeah, I can see all this. So, you know, when you think about Moses being able, he was allowed to look into the land of Israel. Now, I don't know if he has some supernatural vision, but from that side of Jordan, if I could see that, he could see where I was in Jerusalem. You know, so he could see a good bit. It's amazing how much you can see from the hilltops there. But there was a, a little hill. We don't know exactly where, where Moses was buried, but uh, the Catholic Church thinks they know because there was a little green spot on top of a really dry mountain where I think they had put a church where they think he was marked. But anyway, uh, Satan and uh, Michael the Archangel knew. So first off, why were they fighting over, over his body? Well, I think... Moses that we get into in Revelation, he has still another purpose. But anyway, um, I digress. Um, so they came to take the body. Uh, so the, the lesson learned here is that Michael the archangel, as powerful as he is, he still did not go mano a mano, but use the Lord to rebuke. That's the lesson here. It's, it's better for, for us to put the Lord between ourselves and Satan than to take on Satan by ourselves. We shouldn't say things against Satan for, for, he once was one, uh, for he once was God's anointed. You see David, so just because he's evil, you know, it's, he was once God's anointed. You see David follow this when it came to King Saul. With King Saul being evil, coming out trying to kill David, and yet David still dealt with Saul with respect because he was God's anointed king. That's in 1 Samuel chapter 24, six through 10. So it's just wise to, I think, keep our distance and keep the Lord between us and Satan. I think we see a lot of times with Christians, we're kind of on opposite ends when it comes to, to dealing with or talking about Satan. On one end, we have some Christians that live in complete fear. Well, we're not told to do that. Uh, we're told to fear not. In 1 John 4, verse 4, because greater is he that is in you than in he that is in the world, okay? Satan, Jesus is not Satan's equal. Satan is, Jesus was not a creative beating like Satan was. Satan is below Jesus. So Jesus is more powerful. We're not to fear. On the other hand, we have people who don't show or for lack of better words, a healthy respect for Satan and the demonic forces. I saw, I witnessed this during this last uh, Easter Sunday service. I heard a man approach Pastor Rick about playing a funny country song, gospel song called Devil's in the Phone Booth, Dialing 911. That man was me, so I'll go ahead and admit that. I thought it was funny, but again, I was showing a lot of irreverence to uh, to something way more powerful than, than myself. So, um, as I mentioned, Michael didn't even plan on battling with Satan, but uh, went, used, uh, used the name of Jesus. But worse than showing disrespect is having an unhealthy fascination with the dark side, and I'll group in there the occult. There are warnings in the Torah throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament about avoiding any kind of evil that would cause an opening or connection. Okay? So again, we don't want to be in fear, but we also don't need to have an unhealthy fascination. So 
So somewhere in the middle is best. And the movie in The Exorcist came out in the early 70s, and I'm not recommending watching that. But it all started with a girl playing with a Ouija board. And that opened up some kind of portal for, uh, for uh, demons to come in. How did that work out for King Saul when he went to the Winch of Endor? What was his punishment? Death. Okay, and that's in 1 Samuel. As a youth, I used to enjoy watching scary movies. Now my wife will tell you I'm a complete chicken, but I don't watch those anymore. So I don't give the enemy any kind of openings on stuff like that. Okay, but it goes more than just watching scary movies. We need to really police ourselves on watching the places that we go, TV, movies, music that we listen to, even, I'd say, the company that we keep. We should always be on our guard and set ourselves apart. When we talk about the spiritual warfare that we are involved in, whether you like it or not, you're involved in that every day. But you need to make the choice whether you're gonna put on the full armor of God, which is in Ephesians uh, chapter six. We get a glimpse of uh, them talking about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against evil, uh, evil rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Other examples of uh, spiritual warfare in Daniel chapter 10. Remember, he's, he's fasting for 21 days and an, um, an angel, a messenger is sent to him, gives him this huge uh, prophetic revelation but that angel had to fight his way to get to, to Daniel. And then on the way back, he was going to have to, to, to fight his way out. Um, we also see a spiritual warfare perspective in 2 Kings 6, 16, when Elijah uh, said, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So how are you strong? You're strong in the Lord. You don't stand a chance by yourself. Keep the Lord between you and the evil one. Remember, it's not I rebuke you, Satan. It's the Lord rebuke you, Satan. In verse 10, but these things, uh, men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, uh, by these things they are destroyed. In verse 10, we see we have a carnal man who's so hell-bent on the desires of the flesh and doing evil that they're unwilling to listen to any kind of uh, higher authority or, or gain wisdom. The little understanding that they have has been corrupted, rendering them uh, basically to behave like beasts, like animals. The passage in uh, Genesis 6, verse 5, kind of, I think, is relevant for, for this. Uh, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was so great on the earth and that everything intent was on the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So that's the kind of people that we're talking about here in verse uh, 10. In verse 11, woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and, pay, uh, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the air of Balaam and perished in the re rebellion of Korah. So we get these three examples again here. So Cain, uh, the way of anger, Hatred and bitterness. Um, the way, the works of the flesh rather than relying on the work of God. So we'll quickly kind of go through this, but we back up to Genesis chapter four. It all starts with Cain 
giving an unauthorized uh, sacrifice. So Abel does what God commanded and brings an animal sacrifice and Cain's like, here's some fruit, you know, and that's not what, uh, that's not what God had called for. So, and then Cain gets angry about it, all right? So in verse five, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your countenance, and, and why has your countenance fallen? If you did well, and will you not your countenance be lifted up? And if you didn't do well, sin is crouching at the door and is desirous for you, but you must master it. You know, this verse probably, if I hadn't had children, it, you know, it makes sense to me, but having children, I, I get, it makes more sense to me because it's, it's like a father talking with his son is how I see this, with God talking with Cain. And he's sitting there trying to tell him um, to give his son some wisdom. It's kind of a father-son talk. However, as many parents show, children sometimes don't listen. And um, anyway, and after the stark warning of sin crouching at your door and his desire is for you, Cain gives into his anger there and winds up killing his brother Abel. So some significance to this is this is the first human murder um, shown in the Bible that's convict, you know, from a man commit, uh, done to another man. But if you actually think about it, the first murder was Satan with Adam and Eve because they were in the garden and when they took the fruit, you know, and he obviously... I'll get to this here in a little bit, but that sin entered the world and death entered the world uh, through them. So that was actually technically the first murder. This is the first murder for, on a human on another human. This is also, Pastor Rick talks about this. This is the first time the word anger is used in the Bible. So in Genesis chapter four. Balaam, he was filled with greed. Um, he looked to, to better his own position. Uh, using things God and the knowledge and the blessings that God would give him. We recently talked about this. I don't remember how many months ago uh, when we went through numbers. This is in uh, chapter 22 through 24 and how he was blessed by God. He was a prophet, a non-Israelite prophet, Balaam was. But ultimately he chose to use his talents not for honoring God, but for profit and sabotage. And he already got one big warning when he was riding the donkey and came across, uh, came across the angel or the Lord with his sword drawn and the donkey you know, kept trying to tell him, you know, no, we don't need to continue. And so that was the one warning right there. So he knows like I can't directly uh, interfere and help the, the people of Moab you know, try to curse the Israelites. I can't directly do that. But he has another sinister approach you guys remember what, what he does? Let's get the pretty women from Moab, bring them down to the border, and then we'll get the Israelites to see these beautiful women, get them intermarried, and then once we've kind of uh, assimilated, now I can drag the, you know, God won't bless the people of Israel because they're living in sin, because that was a command. They weren't supposed to do that. So he indirectly helps the Moabites and hurts the, God's people, the Israelites. But he's gonna pay the price for that. Just like we see uh, with Korah, they both are gonna pay with their lives. 
um, for, for what they do. But this is another example of apostasy. So Korah and the story, and again, we've, luckily we've kind of just covered a lot of these uh, as Rick's gone through the, the early part of the Old Testament and the Torah. So his way was a way of envy, envy and rebellion against, against God's will and his anointed. Uh, this is in Numbers chapter 16. Korah, who had a position of prestige and he was a Levite and you know, he's kind of up there, but he's not happy with that. He wants to be numero uno, kind of like Satan was not happy with having someone above him. So he rises up 250 men uh, to challenge basically Moses and, and Aaron for leadership. Again, he was, a, he was a Levite in a high position, but that wasn't good enough. Um, you see this in uh, chapter 16, verse 32. So the ultimate, I'll fast forward to the end, but ultimately, uh, it's kind of a cool story. The earth opens up and they fall alive into Sheol. So they fall all the way, him, his family, the possessions, and the 250 men that were in rebellion all die. So uh, envy is not good. Uh, you probably have witnessed the destructions of envy between in family or friends, even in uh, businesses and congregations. You can see this. So in these three cases, we see examples of men who inwardly are focused inwardly on kind of I've got mine attitudes and, putting, and not putting God first. Attitudes of anger, greed, envy. Putting oneself uh, before the Lord is idolatry. And the ultimate rejection of the Lord is apostasy. Now here's what Jude has to say about these false teachers and apostles, apostate teachers. And, and think of this, the, know that the easiest way to deceive is, is not an outright rely, but a lot of times it's that half truth, okay? And I was kind of getting, I got a little ahead of myself, but this is when I was talking about the snake, Satan, in the Garden of Eden. You know, when he tells Eve, you shall not surely die. Well, did Eve die? She eventually did. She didn't die on the spot. It didn't kill her immediately, but she did eventually die. I mean, Adam and Eve went on to live, by our standards, a long, long life. But death was not part of the plan for them initially, but now it was. And again, centered in the world through those two. If you, if you think about it, if you were trying to, if you were an enemy and you were put on a ship and you're, say, undercover, some kind of spy, and you're able to access the, the bridge and access the helm of the ship, and you're kind of maybe acting in a navigator role, and you've got a long voyage that you're gonna be on, if you got in there and just cranked it over and turned it 90 degrees, people are gonna notice really quick that, okay, we're, we're not on course. Get in there and do a half a degree. And then you, over time, now you have that such a divergence. And that also, that most of the time is the most effective way that the apostate is going to, it's gonna be, sounds really true, but there's a little bit of a twist on it because I guarantee, you know, people came in here, if I stood up here and told you guys, polygamy is okay, you guys would throw me out. You know, it's like, you guys know that's wrong. Or I could, you know, make, if I made some outrageous thing, you'd know. 
But if, if I'm trying to just stay a little bit off the truth, that's going to be a lot harder to catch. So that's why we have to really stay focused in, in God's word. So we see some examples in modern times of apostate leaders. Um, not too far from my hometown in Waco, Texas, we had David Koresh in the early 90s. What about Jim Jones? Talk about a charismatic guy who uh, people were drawn to. Um, he was, uh, talk about like if he had a message today, that would also like really resonate with the people. He was a, a social justice warrior, you know, really trying to battle poverty and everything. I mean, it, like I said, that would be a very, uh, would resonate with a lot of people today, even kind of border on socialism and, and stuff. Um, and he was a very talented preacher, uh, but he corrupted the truth and he led many to their destruction in Jonestown. Uh, backing up a little bit further in history, Rick talked about this as well. I never really considered Muhammad an apostate, but take a look back in 627 AD, you had uh, in Medina, he came to, there was, I don't know if you know this, there were, you know, the Jews were spread out. They were, you had Jews living in Turkey and Greece and all over the place. Well, there were Jews down in Saudi Arabia back in the day and they were living in Medina. They were, had a very lucrative uh, marketing and trading and stuff. And Muhammad came to them. He says, hey, I believe, I believe in your God. I'm just like you guys. I just, I got a couple of tweaks that I want to have, some revelations that I want to put in, but I want to be accepted as, you know, one of your rabbis. And they rejected him. So he put to death six to 900 somewhere in there, Jewish men beheaded him. And after Islam and started the religion of Islam, after that, the Jews were permanently banned uh, out of Saudi Arabia, except for one time. There's been one Jew who's been in Saudi Arabia since that 627 AD. Uh, anybody know? Harry Kissinger. So in 1974, June 6, 1974, he uh, was able, as Secretary of State, he met with the Prince, uh, let's see, where do I have it? Prince uh, Fahd at the uh, Riyadh Airport in Saudi Arabia, June 6, 74. A little history uh, tidbit there. But yeah, Jews are not allowed into uh, Saudi Arabia. Um, so Jude goes on to talk about apostates in verse 12. These are men who are hidden reefs, in your love feast, when they feast uh, with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, uh, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead and uprooted. Anyone who sails can understand what this first comparison, you know, if you saw something coming up out of the water, you could steer clear of it. So the, the, the thing that's bad about this is that you, as you're sailing, you don't see that uh, hidden reef. And that's where the danger is. Um, again, this kind of goes to the tares that are within the church. You might even consider them as friends, as enjoying them over for dinner. Perhaps you even invite them to small group. Um, these apostates, like the reefs, cause moral and spiritual wreckage. Clouds without water. Now, again, I've been to Israel. I'm also from Texas, so sometimes we don't get a whole lot of rain, unlike here. So when you see, when you hadn't had rain for a while and you're looking at that, you're, just, you're really hoping for some, some rain and can imagine how disappointed when it just kind of passes over 
and doesn't leave you any rain. It also talks about how they're carried by the wind. So they have no, they're just kind of aimless. There's no point. And then another disappointing thing is you have autumn trees without fruit. So again, how disappointing to have, I have a peach tree. I still haven't gotten a peach on it. It's three years now, but it's very disappointing. Okay, so doubly dead. Um, By the way, there was a cool, you know, the story of uh, Jesus in the fig tree. What did he do when he came? He was hungry, he came across the fig tree. He winds up cursing the the fig tree because it didn't produce fruit. So fruit trees without fruit are kind of pointless. Doubly dead. So um, for the unsaved, they're gonna experience two deaths. The first one physical and the second one would be spiritual. So that's what it's talking about. In verse 13, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. So just driven, no purpose, just raging waves foaming, not spirit led. In John 3, 19 through 20, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. In verse 20, for everyone who does evil hates the light. So that's the important part right there. It does not come to the light for the fear his deeds will be exposed. Also talking about the outer darkness in Matthew twenty two thirteen. Then the king said to his servants, bind them up hand and foot and throw them out into the darkness. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You also see references to this in Matthew 8, 12 and 25, 30. So God is gonna give people over to their desires. So you wanna remain out of the light, God's gonna grant that request. So these people don't are, are like staying in the darkness. And again, he will grant that request. In verse 14, it's also about these men that Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied saying, behold, the Lord came with many thousand of his holy ones. So as we discussed earlier with the name Jude and how there are other Judes out there, there are other Enochs in the Bible other than this one. So the Bible wants to make it clear who he's talking about. So that's why he's gonna say, the one that's the seventh generation from Adam. Okay, this is the one that uh, was actually raptured and walked with God. Um, This prophecy that we just covered is actually the oldest recorded prophecy by man other than when we reference Genesis chapter three, verse 15, when it talks about the, um, um, he will, uh, let me see if I can, Remember, basically he puts the, uh, with the snake, yeah, the, the um, drives it into the hill and, um, and the serpent, uh, he crushes head. So that had a prophetic thing about Christ and Satan with the Christ cru- uh, crucifixion. So, um, but anyway, this prophecy is about the, uh, the prophecy in the is, is witnessing the second coming of Christ with the return of the raptured church, his holy ones. When it mentions the Lord coming uh, with many thousands of his holy ones, it's a, a poor interpretation in English. The Greek word uses the word myriads, also found in, in uh, passages of Zechariah 14, 15, Revelation 19, uh, 14, and Daniel 7, 10. A better phrase would be his holy myriads. So this is a huge number. You could say tens of thousands. It's kind of like, you know, get into trillions. Like you can't really count that high, but it's just a huge, huge number. Okay. Moses uses the term in uh, Deuteronomy 33, verse two, as angels. 
Also in Acts 7.53, Galatians 3.19, and Christ's return as uh, all the holy angels in Matthew 25, verse 31. However, in Colossians 3, verse 4, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also be revealed with him in glory. In 1 Thessalonians 3.13, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So the second coming, and again, this is kind of something I learned, this is when the second coming of Christ, we've got angels coming in and also the rapture church that are coming. So it's both is the, is the point here. Verse 15, to execute judgment upon all and convict all the ungodly of their ungodly deeds, which they have done in an ungodly way and all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So this verse brings me back to when uh, Christ in Nazareth opens his ministry up, reading from Isaiah 61, verse one and two. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me up to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty and captives and freedom to the prisoners. Verse two, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he stops and, and closes the, the scroll back up. But this is the part that is the second coming, the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. So Jesus reads, like I said, uh, the second uh, part of that is the day of vengeance set for the second coming. Also talked about in Luke 14, verse 30. Additionally, and I said I would touch upon this, um, but there is a book, an apocryphal book called uh, the Book of Enoch. The Book of Enoch, though, wasn't written until the second century AD. Um, so, and it. That verse right there, there is a verse in the book of Enoch and the two are very similar, but they're not the same. Okay, so which one do we go with? Do we go with the book of Enoch that Enoch wrote or are we gonna go with what Jude is trying to say hundreds of years, maybe thousand years after Enoch? Well, again, we're, we're gonna go with what Jude has because that's in the Canaan. That's, what, that's trusted scripture. The book of Enoch was written down not necessarily by Enoch, but it was written down after the book of Jude, okay? So the book of, of Jude is divinely inspired. There are other examples in the New Testament, New Testament of secrets revealed from the Old Testament that were unlocked by the Holy Spirit. So we talked about with Jude, Michael's dispute over the body, Paul's name of the two uh, magicians, that were in Egypt, Janus and Jambres, in 2 Timothy 3. Um, in verse 16, there are grumblers, finding fault, following their own lusts, and they speak errantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. That sounds like a politician to me right there. But uh, one of the things that Rick was talking about is as Christians, we're not necessarily apostates, but we can find ourselves getting into grumbling and doing a lot of these things, and those things we need to repent and come back. In verse 17, but you beloved ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus. Verse 18, that you were saying, uh, that they were saying to you in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own godly lust. These are two verses that probably are, that the apostle Paul's talking about. In the last day, scoffers will come saying, where's the promise of his coming? Scoffers are marking the second coming of Christ. You've, uh, 
you probably have heard this before, but it's gonna start getting, you're gonna start hearing that drum beat louder and louder as the church, we start anticipating it. And then you have the world are gonna be mocking us for that. The, the part that I don't like is when you start to hear people within the church who are also scoffing at that. So that's, tread carefully there, brother. Now I'm not talking about the rapture here, but the second coming uh, of Christ. And that's the part that Enoch is talking about. It's also listed in Matthew 25. Verse 19, there are the ones who cause division, worldly-minded, devoid of the spirit. So I can say this, God hates uh, division. Proverbs 6, verse 16 to 19, there are six things that the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him meaning the seventh one he really, really dislikes. Uh, Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that uh, devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness that utters lies, and the final one, one who spreads strife among brothers. So again, these are things that uh, the Lord really, really dislikes. Uh, and that's kind of what you see with apostasy is the, the division with brothers. So finally, we get to a word of encouragement. So verse 20, but you beloved building yourselves up for on your, excuse me, but you building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. So our faith should be increasing. Our faith should be growing. The longer we walk with the Lord, the greater your faith shall be. Faith comes by hearing and hearing of the word of God, Romans 10, 17. So what advantages are coming to uh, on a Wednesday night and listening to me of all people? Hopefully your faith is growing because you're learning about God, because you're doing nothing but going through the word of God. You're reading, uh, what you're reading is going to be an advantage to you, though what I'm saying may not make an impression at all. Just the reading and hearing of the word is going to build your faith. Because you understand more and more about God, the more and more you understand him, the more and more you will trust him, building yourself up in the most holy faith. Asking the Holy Spirit to direct direct your prayer in cases groaning in the spirit because of situations where sometimes you don't have words for that, for what you wanna say. The words aren't coming. We can groan and that's okay. Perhaps you're overwhelmed with emotion. Maybe somebody close to you died and you just, you just can't get the words out of your mouth. Christ takes our prayers and intercedes with us for the Father. And that's the great thing. Romans 8, 34, Jesus is at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. John, 1 John 2, 1, Jesus is our advocate with the Father. Hebrews 7, 25, we learn that Jesus always lives to intercede for us. Again, this is comforting to know because you don't have to be articulate while praying. You don't have to be able to quote scripture out of the King James. You don't even have to sound as great as Les sounds when he prays. You know, because you have an advocate in Christ who's going to make your prayer perfect, which that's, when, when I pray, that's, that's a lot of work he's gotta do. So... In verse 21, keep yourself in the love, uh, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. So that's an important thing. God loves you because, because he loves you. 
He wants to bless you. He wants to bestow his goodness upon your life. But though, but through unbelief, like the Israelites wandering in the desert, you can keep yourself from uh, receiving his full blessing. And even the angels, which kept not their first estate, lifted up in pride, rebelled against God, as you too, through pride and rebellion against God, you can put yourself outside of God's blessing upon your life. Verse 22 and 23, and have mercy on some who are doubting, save others, snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. So I'm like, okay, what's that about? Um, so we don't, what do we do with apostates? What does Jude tell us to do? So you find an apostate, you just throw him out of the church. You know, we, we, we want to, you know, what about unbelievers, people who don't know Christ as their savior? What do we, what do, we do with them? Um, we obviously don't want to just wall everything off and turn this into a fortress and, you know, we're good. What about the lost world out there? So how do we reach out to them? Well, you, you can't witness to everybody alike. People are different. In this, verse 22 and 23, we're, he talks about three types here. You have your doubters. You have your people who are kind of walking the fence. And then you have the people who are in full rebellion uh, with sin. Jude instructs us to treat each uniquely because in each case is different. And some people have different temperaments. Some people, you've got to get, uh, Chuck Smith is, you've got, to, you've got to scare the hell out of them. That was his words. Others are drawn by love, some with compassion making a difference, others with fear and pulling them out of the fire. In verse 24 and 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. Verse 25, to only God, our Savior through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever, amen. That's exactly how God's going to present us, faultless before the presence of his glory. Romans 8, 1, there's therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus bore our sins on the, uh, bore the sins of the world. Every sin that you uh, have ever or will ever commit, Jesus died for and covered by his blood. Now we don't know, uh, we don't wanna take that grace as a cloak for sin, uh, he does. Uh, he who does evil does not really know God, but thank God for those who believe and are trusting in Jesus Christ and seeking to walk with him. We may stumble, as the verse talks about, we may fall, but he's going to present to us as faultless to the Father. When the Lamb takes the scroll out of the right hand of him who sits upon the throne, there in glory, the angels will declare, worthy is the Lamb, Receive dominion, glory, and might, and power. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion, power, both now and forever. Amen. Lord, thank you for, for this evening. Thank you that um, just for your word, for your warning through Jude. Um, I just pray for a protection on us individually, on our families, and, the ch and your church. You warn us about the, the later days. And Lord, I just pray that, that our hearts are, are seeking you, um, that, again, that we will be emboldened to go out and spread your, your word, the gospel, to all those who are lost. 
And uh, I just pray for a discernment in our lives and a blessing as we go forward uh, this week. And thank you again, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name.